Well, it's uh, that time of the year again, isn't it? Uh, yes, spring has sprung. And for some of us, that means that it's time for the annual spring clean. Uh, time to chuck out all those things that we don't want anymore. But if you're about to have a bit of a clean-up at your place, uh, then be sure not to make the same mistake as one elderly British woman who last year was cleaning out her home and came across a ring that she'd bought years earlier at a car boot sale, which is a bit like a garage sale, but from, from someone's boot. And she bought the ring for just a few dollars. And then she kept it in a bag with some other cheap costume jewellery. Well, she was about to put the whole thing in the bin when her neighbour suggested that she get the items valued, which she did. And to her surprise, the stone in that worthless ring was actually a 34-carat diamond worth $3.6 million. <laughs> yes, and there it is in all its sparkly glory. $3.6 million! Can you imagine what a happy ending it was for that lady? Uh, but not, of course, for the... Uh, Poor sucker who gave that precious stone away at his car boot sale. No, he'd be kicking himself for sure, right? But you know, his mistake is nothing compared to the mistake some people make in today's Bible passage. Now, they also throw away a stone thinking it's worthless. But the difference is, their mistake has eternal consequences. And we'd do very well to take heed. Today we uh, continue in our series in Luke's Gospel, and uh, we reach the end of chapter 19. If you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, uh, can I encourage you to grab one now, turn with me there. Uh, if you've got a church Bible, it's page 1634, uh, the end of Luke chapter 19. And let me remind you that for the last 10 chapters, we have been travelling with Jesus and his disciples as they've made their way to Jerusalem, where Jesus predicts he'll be put to death. Now, we've finally arrived. And in today's passage, uh, the very first thing that Jesus does in Jerusalem, uh, we see, is he goes into the temple. That, that special place established by God, where his people could meet with him, to worship him. But as Jesus walks into the temple courts, he looks around and he's outraged at what's going on. This place of holy worship has been reduced to a, a noisy marketplace. Now, now, don't forget, this is the Passover week and Jerusalem is full of pilgrims from all over Palestine and beyond. And so you, you would expect to see merchants and money changers at the temple. After all, they provide an important service. I, I'm sure you'd agree it would have been very, very inconvenient for the pilgrims to have to bring their sacrificial birds and sacrificial lambs with them as they travel to Jerusalem. And the money changers enabled them to, to trade their regular money into the coinage needed to pay the temple tax. And so in one sense, these merchants and money changers provided a really helpful service to the pilgrims. But it seems that they were taking advantage of them charging the pilgrims exorbitant uh, fees, uh, you know, ripping them off. Basically, they had turned God's temple into a kind of uh, spiritual paddy's markets. Can you imagine? 
Get your spotless lamb here, folks. Get it here. Buy two and we'll throw in a free Dagwood dog. And significantly, all this is happening while the religious leaders watch on approvingly. And why not? After all, they're most likely getting a cut of the profits. When Jesus sees what's going on, he's filled with righteous indignation. And so he takes matters into his own hands, driving the merchants and the, the money changers out of the temple. Get out of here, he says. The lot of you, get out. Can you imagine? Then Jesus goes on to explain his actions. He reminds everyone that God's temple should be a place of prayerful worship, not a hangout for thieves. These crooks, you see, are dishonouring God in this holiest of places, and so Jesus takes it upon himself to chuck them out. Well, the religious leaders see this, and now it's their turn to be outraged because they know that ultimately... Jesus' actions are an indictment of their leadership. He is defying and embarrassing them, which makes them more convinced than ever that Jesus needs to be eliminated. Only problem is, the people love what Jesus is doing. This is exactly the kind of Messiah they've been waiting for. And so none of the leaders dares raise a finger against him. Here, read with me from Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Chapter 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Well, the next day, Jesus returns to teach in the temple, undeterred by the muttered threats of the religious leaders. But the religious leaders are ready for him having come up with an ingenious plan. At least it's ingenious in their minds. They send an official delegation to question Jesus about the source of his authority, what gives him the right to do these things. But there's nothing genuine about their question. In fact, it's a trap designed to catch Jesus in his own words. You see, if he answers that he acts and speaks on his own authority, well, he discredits himself to the people who who think up until this point that he's from God. But if he says that he acts with divine authority, then the religious leaders will be able to charge him with blasphemy and have him killed. But Jesus sees right through these guys. And so he answers their question with an ingenious question of his own. Tell me, He asks, where did John the Baptist get his authority from? Why is it ingenious? Well, because by asking this question, Jesus isn't evading theirs. He's actually answering it. 
Because you see, everyone knows that John the Baptist identified Jesus as God's Messiah. The one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. The one before whom all should repent. Uh, the, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one at whose baptism God declared, this is my son. Listen to him. Yet the religious leaders know very well this is what John taught. And so now they're they're in a bit of a pickle. And I can't help but imagine the scene. The smug smiles on their faces uh, slowly disappearing as they realise that the implications of Jesus' question. They're standing there in, in stunned silence for a moment. Before one of them says, um, just a second. And they all get into a huddle. They huddle together and one of them says, a good one, Ichabod. Why did you go and ask that? What were you thinking? Now look at the mess you've got us into. And Ichabod's like, fellas, I thought that was what we all agreed on. And another one, he's like, don't, don't worry about that now. Don't worry about that now. What are we going to say? If we say that that John had God's authority, we're going to look like fools because he backed this guy. But if we say that John wasn't from God, the crowd's going to string us up because they loved the man. And so the religious leaders are stuck. That is until Ichabod finally says, oh, fellas, I've got it. I I know, I know, know exactly what we should say. I've got it. And so in hushed whispers, he shares his clever plans. And it's approved by all the others. And with that, they turn back to face Jesus. And Ichabod says, "Um, we don't know. (laughs) And it would be a really funny scene if it weren't so tragic. Because Jesus knows this isn't true ignorance, but rather the evidence of proud and hardened hearts. And so seeing that it is fruitless to engage with them further, Jesus turns away, refusing to answer their question. Here, read with me from chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And you can almost hear the muffled snickers in the crowd, can't you? As these religious leaders who set out to discredit Jesus in the process discredit themselves. I mean, they can't even say where the mighty prophet John, whether he was from God or not. What kind of spiritual leaders are they? Well, with that, Jesus turns back to the crowd who have witnessed all this and and tells them a a parable in which he, he indirectly but unmistakably answers the religious leader's question about his authority. Uh, Read with me from verse 9. Verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, apparently, this kind of contract farming was quite common in Jesus' day. Uh, where a rich property owner uh, would let out his farm to others who'd then be able to work the land for themselves. Uh, The idea was that at harvest time, they'd pay the rent by giving a portion of the grapes to the owner. But shockingly, that's not what happens here. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, this is terrible behaviour, isn't it? Terrible. And so what does the owner do? Does he contact the Office of Fair Trading? Well, no. Instead, he gives them another chance. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Okay, so surely now he'll send in the authorities, right? Well, no. Apparently, this property owner is extremely patient and wants to give these tenants every opportunity to do what's right. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said... What shall I do? And we're all like, what do you mean? What shall I do? It's a no-brainer. These people have acted shamefully, criminally. Send them all to prison and throw away the key. But no, the owner decides. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. I mean, they don't respect his slaves. Surely they'll respect his son, right? The one who carries his father's authority. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And perhaps as they see the son coming, they think, oh, well, maybe the owner is dead. Maybe that's why he's not coming. Maybe that's why the son's coming. Which gets them thinking, hey, if we kill the heir, 
then all this will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus goes on to ask, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so the tenants get exactly what they deserve. Well, there you go. Uh, that, that, that's Jesus' story. Uh, so what do the various aspects of this parable represent, do you think? Well, you know, I've been listening to Jeff Reed's preaching long enough now to realise something very significant. Why should I do the work when I can get you all to do it for me? Okay, there you have it, up on the screen, various aspects of Jesus' parable. Turn to a couple of people around you, spend a minute or two uh, discussing what you think each aspect represents, and then we'll come back and chat about it. Okay, off you go. Make sure nobody's left alone. All right, that's not, time's up, time's up. I, not that hard, I don't think, is it? Not that hard. Let's see what you came up with. Help me out here. Uh, what'd you get for the vineyard? The vineyard, anybody? Israel. You got? Yeah, I think that's right. That was an Old Testament picture of Israel, a vineyard. Uh, good. What about the vineyard owner then? God, you guys are so smart. Uh, the tenant farmers. The tenant farmers. The Jews, the Israel, and I think in particular the religious leaders, I think he's got them in mind. Uh, the, the fruit the owner wanted, faith, righteousness, I think, yeah, all these things, lives lived for God, I think that's, that's yep, that's what it is. The servants, Old Testament prophets, yeah, I think so. The beloved son, anybody, <laughs> anybody? Anybody? Jesus? Yes, well done. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think that, I, it's, it's not that hard, is it? Well, though, I, I do have to say that I, this whole get the congregation to do the work for you thing is actually a brilliant idea. <laughs> I think Jeff Reed is really onto something. Um, that being the case, let me ask, how would... <laughs> You finish the rest of today's Bible talk. What do you think? Okay, a couple of minutes, get together, then we'll come back and we'll just close in prayer, all right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But what do you reckon? What do you reckon the point is that Jesus is making in this parable? What do you think? Uh, it's pretty obvious, I think, isn't it? Uh, over the centuries, God has sent prophet after prophet to call Israel to repentance uh, but time and again, those prophets have been mistreated, even killed. So now God has sent his own beloved son, Jesus, to call the people back to God. But soon, the Jewish leaders will kill him too. So God will judge them for their actions. And they'll lose his protection and blessing. And you know, it is true that in just 40 years or so, the Romans will come in as part of God's judgment, and destroy the temple, raising it to the ground. That the temple will be cleared out once and for all. 
But when the crowd hears Jesus' parable, they gasp, say, no way, Jesus. Tell us it isn't true. But Jesus knows that it is true, that he will be rejected like the stone mentioned in Psalm 118. Now, that psalm pictures a, a, a construction worker a wor- walking through a, a stone quarry, choosing the best stones for his building. And he comes across one stone and he, he inspects it, he looks at it and he goes, nah. And he casts it aside into a rubble heap as worthless. But when it comes time for the cornerstone of his building to be laid, well, he discovers that his throwaway stone is the only one that fits the bill. The cornerstone, of course, being that stone that supports two adjoining walls, giving structural integrity, integrity to the whole building. In other words, Jesus predicts that though he will be tossed aside as worthless, in the end, he will be vindicated. Moreover, he knows that ultimately he will triumph in judgment over all who reject him. He'll either be the rock on which they'll fall and be broken, or or, or the rock that'll fall on and crush them. It doesn't matter. Either way, they're going to be pulverised. Kind of reminds me of the sort of clip you'd see on Australia's Funniest Home Videos, if you remember that show. You know, where there's some bloke with a cricket ball, you Tosses it over his shoulder, only to then have it bounce off a wall behind him and come back and bonk him on the head. Except it'll be no laughing matter when the rejected stone, Jesus, comes back to smash these rebels. You read with me these final verses for today from halfway through verse 16. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written in Psalm 118? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. It's rather ironic, isn't it? That these religious leaders are like, how dare this man liken us to those murderous tenants? Now, how are we going to kill him? And in fact, in just a couple more days on on Friday, they'll get their way. They'll execute Jesus on a cross. But on Sunday, this rejected stone will emerge victorious from his tomb. Vindicated once and for all, just as he said. And with that, we come to the end of today's passage. What have we seen 
Well, Jesus drives the crooks out of God's temple and begins teaching the people. So the religious leaders question him about his authority. But it's a trap. Jesus sees through them and exposes their stubbornness and hypocrisy. Then in a parable, he tells the people exactly where his authority comes from. He is the beloved son of God, the heir of God's kingdom, the cornerstone who will be rejected but vindicated, and the stone who will crush those bent on defying him. And for us here today, what is abundantly clear from this passage is the fact that Jesus is someone that you just cannot ignore. In fact, he's someone that you ignore and discard to your own peril. Because the simple truth is, his claims of authority go way beyond first century Judea to include you and me here today. And one day, every one of us will stand before him in all his fearsome glory. And that means the way you respond to Jesus in this life is of the utmost importance. Because, you see, on Judgment Day, he will be one of two things to us. He will either be your cornerstone or your crushing stone. Your cornerstone or your crushing stone. And which one he is will depend on how you respond to his demands on your life. Whether or not you're willing to submit to him as your Lord and King. For some of us, Jesus is nothing more than a rock that is in our way. A rock that would keep us from the life that we want to live. And we resent that. A bit like those religious leaders. Jesus came in calling them to change the way they did things, not just there in the temple, but in their lives. He challenged their hypocrisy, their greed, their self-serving religiosity. And they didn't appreciate that one bit. So they plotted to kill him. They took that most valuable of stones and cast it aside as rubbish. A bit like that car boot salesman. So much worse. Yet for others of us, God has opened our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. The Messiah. The Son of God. Our Saviour. The cornerstone of God's eternal kingdom. And to us, he is so precious. Friend, let me ask, which is he to you? Your cornerstone 
or your crushing stone. Now, one of the things that really strikes me in this passage is the incredible patience God shows as he calls people to submit their lives to him. Incredible patience. We saw it in that parable of the tenants, didn't we? The owner sends servant after servant after servant and then even his own son to plead with them to repent. And we see the same patience in Jesus too, don't we? I mean, here he is two days before his crucifixion, still calling these hard-hearted religious leaders to repent still proclaiming the good news in the temple. You see, friends, God is not keen to punish us. He longs for us to repent and be saved. It's why he sent Jesus to be crushed for us. He shows incredible patience. But friend, know this. There is a limit to God's patience. The fact is, some of you here have heard the gospel call on your life. You've heard it many, many, many times. You know it. You know it all. You've heard it. And yet you still refuse to bow your knee to Jesus. Friend, I've got to warn you. That is a very dangerous place to be. Because this passage shows us that there is an end to God's patience. That's what the tenant farmers discovered, isn't it? And it's what we saw with the religious leaders too. I mean, can you think of anything more tragic than having the Son of God turn away from you, unwilling to engage with you anymore because your heart is so close to him? How utterly terrifying. Friend, do you think that might be you? Is that how you've been responding to Jesus? Then surrender your life to him now, before it's too late. Let me say it again. On judgment day, Jesus will either be your cornerstone or your crushing stone your saviour or your judge. So bow your knee to him today, please, and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus. Thank you that He came to call us to repentance 
and to make a way for our salvation. Father, we confess that Jesus is Lord of all. That he is our Lord. And so help us now to live for him, honouring him, obeying him, and cherishing him as the precious cornerstone of our salvation. In his powerful, glorious name we pray. Amen.